Hello and welcome to another Leaders and Legends podcast. In this episode, I've extracted the audio from the RSM live stream, which was recorded on the 14th of October, 2023. Please sit back and enjoy some wonderful words of wisdom from six current and previous regimental sergeant majors of the Army. Today we are joined by six current and previous regimental sergeant majors of the Australian Army here at the home of the soldier at Kapuka to answer some questions today, not only from me, but also the online audience and the live audience we have here today. Let's get into the introductions. On your left, we have our current and 12th Regimental Sergeant Major of the Army, Warren Officer Kim Felmingham, who commenced her appointment on July 2022. Ma'am, welcome and thanks for joining us today. Good afternoon, Mark. And gentlemen, thanks very much for uh, joining us here today. I know that the audience across our army are looking forward to your comments, noting your extensive experience. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks, ma'am. Our 11th RSM of the Army, Warren Officer Grant McFarland, who served as RSMA from July 2018 to July 2022. Sir, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks, Mark. Kim, thank you for the kind invitation. It's great to be back here at the home of the soldier, where we all started our careers, and a pleasure to be here with some esteemed colleagues. Thank you. Our 10th RSM of the Army, Mr Don Spinks, who served as RSMA from July 2015 to July 2018. Don, welcome, and thanks for being here today. Thank you, Mark. This has begun to become repetitive, but could I also pass on my thanks to Kim uh, her team and the folks here at Kapuka uh, for inviting us back. It's always a privilege to come to the home of the soldier. Uh, great to be here. Over to the other table, our ninth RSM of the Army, Warren Officer Dave Ashley, who served from October 2011 to July 2015. Sir, welcome. Thanks, Kim, and thanks to everyone here and online, and uh, it's an honour to be here. We then go on to our seventh RSM of the Army, Mr Kev Woods, who served as RSMA from the period December 2003 to February 2008. Kev, welcome and thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Mark. Uh, again, Kim, many thanks for the kind invitation to be here. It's an honour and a privilege to be back at the home of the soldier uh, and to get the opportunity to interact with the group that's here and those online. So thank you. Thank you. And finally, our fifth Regimental Sergeant Major of the Army, Mr Peter Rosemont, who served as RSMA from December 1996 to March 2001. Pedro, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Mark. And uh, thanks again to Kim for the uh, generous invitation. It's great to be here to uh, join with my colleagues, uh, but also the audience. And uh, it's privileged to be back in the home of the soldier. It's wonderful. Thanks very much. Before we start, I must state that the views and opinions of all speakers today are that of themselves and does not represent the Australian Army or the Australian Defence Force. All right, let's get into the questions. And the first question goes out to everyone. In 1983, when Wally Thompson was first appointed as Australia's first Regimental Sergeant Major of the Army, how have you seen the role of RSM evolve and why does it remain so important for our army into our future? We might start with you, Pedro. Thank you. Um, 
I was a junior RSM in my first appointment in 1983 when Wally was appointed RSM of the Army. When he took up the appointment, he actually started with a blank sheet of paper. There were no rules on how he should conduct and uh, fulfil his role of communication across the Army, up, down and right across all ranks, provide feedback in the headquarters and, uh, and feedback back down from the headquarters. He fulfilled that role, I think, with integrity, clear communication, and, uh, and a great personality to uh, set a standard. I commend all of the RSMs here for their continued evolution of that role that Wally uh, created, established, and uh, their part in um, the role today. Very insightful, thanks very much. David, anything to add? Yeah, I think when you bore my job down, uh, it was communication. And I think that um, we've always, like all big organisations, have an issue with the internal communication. It was to get the Chief's intent right down to the grassroots, the lowest ranks, but also get their views and pass it up to the Chief faithfully. So in other words, even if the views of the grassroots are not in line with the Chief's inclinations, you have to tell the, ch the Chief. And I also found that People were willing to tell the RSM of the Army things they'd never, ever tell the general, particularly officers for some reason. I think I was their message carrier. So I think that for the RSM of the Army, you've got to be the Army's friend. Great, thanks. Don? Thanks, Mark. Knowing this group, the experience has been different for all of us. And talking to Kim this morning, she is well and truly immersed in the experience. And you know, that tells me that the role has continued to evolve and it will continue to evolve. Um, and the next in line will bring their personality, their character to the role and they will continue to provide that much needed advice to Army senior leadership and now equally as importantly to Defence's uh, senior leadership from the other ranks' perspective. Great. Any more? Okay, we'll move on to the next question, which is a question for everyone. We are all stewards within this great institution. What stands out for you as your greatest impact or achievement during your time as a soldier? Let's start with Dave. Well, that's a question that I can't answer. It's for other people to determine what my strengths or weaknesses were. But how did I become the RSM of the Army? And I guess that's an achievement. It wasn't just because of me. I, although I tried my hardest always... <clears throat> It was because, frankly, I was in the right place at the right time and there's an element of fate in all of our careers. But I trusted those I led. And I'll give you an example. I started in the Army in, the, in one hour, went to the School of Infantry and then I was promoted to sergeant to go to 5-7 hour, a mechanised battalion. I did not want to go there. I'm a light infantryman. I don't want to be a mech head. In fact, I went to complain to Arthur Francis, another RSM of the Army, who told me this. The Army is a lot bigger than you, Corporal Ashley. Shut up and enjoy your posting. But when I got there, I was out of my depth. I was a light infantryman. I didn't know how mechanised infantry worked. My platoon commander was in the same boat. He was an officer from Intelligence Corps doing his 12 months regimental service. Kev Woods, in fact, was the CSMB company at the same time. But I had three outstanding section commanders. Their names were Barry Denton, Phil Scarrett, and Dave Allen. Dave Allen became a senior RSM and I was a major at Cat C. I trusted them with validation, but I trusted them and they never let me down. And 
before you knew it, they had brought us along and we were champion platoon not once but twice in the year because we trusted. If our troops are well trained and you train them, you, there's no fear you should have in trusting them. So trust your people. Because I trusted, they delivered back to me in spades. And I think that's one of the fundamental reasons I became the RSM of the Army. Fantastic. Thank you. And Pedro? I'll just um, uh, go on a little from, uh, from Dave's discussion. The delegation of authority starts from the top and it goes all the way to the bottom. And that involves that and evokes that trust Dave talked about. Delegation is a responsibility at all rank levels and uh, I, I, I find over time looking back uh, at instances in my career where I would put myself in the firing line and have people say to me, you are taking a risk with your career and my answer would be I don't have a career, I just have this current job. If I do it well enough somebody might offer me another one. And that's how I looked at it and I think uh, along with Dave's comment about trust, it was delegation, give the authority to the person with the rank to do the job and allow them to do it. If they make a mistake, correct it afterwards. If they don't make a mistake, compliment them on a, on, them on a job well done. And I think that's very, very important. You know, one of the Chief's priorities is around stewardship. And when I speak to soldiers, a lot of the time, and officers, a lot of the time they think about the stewardship of equipment, the stewardship of, um, you know, the, the personal equipment they're carrying, the platform that they may, may work on. Um, I think with stewardship, just as described, stewardship is about the organisation. And it's about not leaving a legacy, but leaving an inheritance, leaving the, the job you're in or the responsibility you have, better for the next. And if we've done that, we've done the right thing for the Army and certainly for the ADF. A little bit like Dave, it's not for me or for us to mark our own homework, but we need to comment on this topic. Um, not my greatest impact, but those who trained me to do what I've done and to be where I've been, that impact, I hope that I've paid it forward which is what Kim's just reflected on. So I thank our Vietnam veterans and Pedro knows this and I continually tell them it's their fault. And of course they get annoyed with that, wondering what I'm blaming them for this time. I'm actually thanking them. I'm telling them it's their fault that my generation um, carried the flag standing on their shoulders and all of my instructors, all of my platoon staff here, less my platoon commander, were Vietnam veterans. So I hope um, that in some way or another, uh, as Kim said, that we pass the baton forward. Um, that's not a legacy, but, but that's our gift to, to you and the generations. Uh, for the next question, I'll push over this side. Uh, passing on knowledge, training and developing has always been an important to the Army. For the instructors in our establishment uh, today, for those soldiers considering being instructors in the future, what advice do you have? Well, firstly, let me say that looking back on my career, there are two units that I regret never having been posted to. One is Combat Training Centre and the other is 1RTB. One 1RTB one is the most important unit in the Army. 
Because the last I heard, you can't have an army without soldiers. It is as simple as that. Instructional post-ins make you a better soldier. Let's look at what we're doing now. How are we helping Ukraine fight for their freedom? Besides giving them equipment, we are training them and mentoring them to fight. That's an instructional role. We've done it in the past in Timor-Leste, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in the Philippines, and we'll do it in the future. So what I recommend to everyone, instructional post-ins will make you a better soldier. That is a simple statement of fact. So plan your career. Where, where am I suited? How can I develop? When should I go there? Then work with your RSM, your chain of command and your career manager and see if you can achieve that. You will be a better soldier by having service in a training unit. Training and training establishments bring out the best qualities and, uh, of, of all staff. You understand your role to teach whatever the, uh, the subject matter is uh, in the correct manner to the highest standard. What you're given to teach, though, is an important uh, element of that. And every soldier in our army volunteered to join. Every soldier volunteered to be here and therefore you can assume they want to be the best that they can be. If you assume that and you're the best you can be in, in providing your level of instruction, then you're delivering for the Army's requirement. And I say that in a, in a manner that if you're an instructor role, you have to be the subject matter expert in whatever it is you're teaching. And most skills that soldiers learn are actually practical skills, not so much theory. That means that you have to have the highest skill level. So to be an instructor or to strive to be an instructor, you should be practising your skills to the highest possible level for you so that one day you can then impart those skills uh, to, to others as in, a, in a training organisation. I never got to come to Kapuka either, uh, although I wanted to. I was an instructor of gunnery in my own school at uh, School of Armour and I was an instructor at Officer Cadet School, Portsea. But uh, that limited me uh, in that, right, that way. However, um, striving for other things as well, you teach every day in your unit doing your role by showing junior soldiers how to do it efficiently. That's being an instructor as well. So... Whatever you do, you should strive to be the best. Great, thank you. Uh, moving on, we'll move over to the other, the other table for this one. Uh, war has always driven innovation and technological advances. How important was an innovative mindset for Army soldiers throughout your service? And how important do you see an innovative mindset for our soldier into the future? Ma'am, we'll start with you if we can, please. Thanks, Mark. Um, innovation is all about solving the problems of today. And you only have to go onto the internet and Google Australian soldier innovation or war innovation and there are myriads, myriads of examples. Uh, and the first one that springs to mind is the periscope rifle where it was a young junior NCO that came up with the concept of being able to see above the side of the trench without having to expose themselves that wasn't somebody sitting back, um, you know, away from the front line, which is a very important role. 
that was somebody that was solving the problem that they had today. And I'm really pleased to see that we, as an organisation, still value that importance of innovation uh, and we will continue to enable, if we want to succeed, we need to continue to enable our junior levels to come up with solving those problems that they are facing today. Innovation has always been important to us, um, but we've now given it a, as Kim said, we've give, now given it a platform. Um, in my time, we created Makerspace, um, and that was on the back of a young SIG from 7 SIG Regiment, myself and the Chief. Cassag was there, actually. Um, and he told us about this device that he um, built to deceive the enemy and send off a signal the size of a brigade location. Um, everyone was pretty happy with that. And then he explained that he did it while he was on convalescence leave in his undies. And he had to apologise to the, uh, the CO because he'd acquired some of the equipment out of the workshop without signing for it. But he was a young kid that just got on with life because he identified an issue uh, and, and, and built it. And I think the other great thing is that Kim is now the ambassador for Makerspace, so I think that is great recognition. Um, and we all should strive for make sure our people that are really smart or come up with ideas um, that we give them that platform to expand on that. Done. Thanks, Mark. Um, some of the best ideas come from our soldiers, and we've heard some examples of that. Um, but there's no better teacher than lived experience. Uh, DiggerWorks is a classic example of that. DMO, CASG, whatever you want to call it this week. Um, DiggerWorks, the program that was established. Diggers, users, end users were involved right from the start and helped evolve those equipments, um, uniforms, etc. Uh, to the level where they were fit for purpose by the time they got downrange. Now, to me, that's a classic example of uh, leveraging off the experience of your workforce to innovate and to move forward and don't stand still. Don't be satisfied with what you've got. Look to improve it. So for me, innovation will always be with us. I think some classic examples that we're seeing right now um, in the space of the UAVs uh, and drones in Ukraine and more recently, unfortunately, with the Israeli uh, conflict, that's, that's innovation on the battle space. You know, small cost items taking out millions, billions of dollars worth of equipment, that's innovation at the coalface. It'll be with us forever. On to the next one. I'm going to push this one to Don and, and Kev. What is the toughest decision you ever had to support in your career? Why was it tough? And do you still stand by that support today? Um, I had a couple of issues that I had to support. Um, but the biggest one I had was a thing called uh, technology-based training. Um, I went into training command as the RSM of training command in, uh, in the year 2000. And my boss, uh, Major General Roger Powell, who I have an extreme amount of time for, uh, a really good guy. And what this technology-based training was going to do was, was going to... You can imagine a corpus course as we know it today. It's roughly 12 weeks. I assume it's still about 12 weeks. Uh, this technology-based training was going to shorten the course by about six weeks with some face-to-face -face teaching, but most of it online. <coughs> well, as far as I was concerned, 
when we go on our promotion courses, through my experience, is that we don't need 50% of the courses, basically we learn from our instructors or from our PAMs or from some sort of textbook. But the other 50% of that course learning comes from the people that are on course, the peer group. You learn so many lessons and takeaways from your own peers. Also, you learn a lot of lessons uh, from your instructors. What I tried to do is to tell the commander, training command, that you know, the word on the street out there, this, this is not very well liked. But we had a number of education officers as part of the headquarters that had been pushing this for 12 months. And I don't know how far they would have got because 12 months before I came into the job, uh, training command didn't have an RSM. So maybe that was the, the missing piece that could have slowed this down or stopped it. <coughs> so Major General Powell's answer was, well, this is the way of the future, RSM, so I need you to go out there and support it. So I did. And it's like trying to sell rotten fruit. No one wants to buy it. You know, the ORs didn't want anything to do with it. The officers didn't want anything to do with it. But... Like all wire officers, if your boss says this is the rule, and it is, you're not breaking any laws, this is my decision, so you have to go and support it. So you do that to 150% of your best. Thankfully, um, the system pulled back on the technology-based training and it sort of died a natural death. Now, don't get me wrong, I, I'm not against computer-based training. It works well in universities, in some areas of defence, yes. But when it comes to our promotion courses, which is our lifeblood of the organisation, uh, it didn't fit and there was no fit for it. So that was probably the hardest decision I, or the hardest decision that I had to support, knowing that I didn't like it. Uh, I served for 40, just under 40 years uh, Everyone in this room, everyone online, and particularly this group here, um, have had lots of tough decisions to support or to make during our time. Um, some of them others have made, some of them we've made, some are popular, some are unpopular. Some impact individuals, organisations, or in fact the institution, and Kev's just given us an example of that. None of us agree on everything. That's a fact of life, but it's also a fact of service. Supporting command is what we all do, everyone, unless CDF's listening, and then he's supporting command as well. Um, it's what we've done all our careers, whether we agree or not, with the decision, if you've had your say or if you had the opportunity to put forward your points, as Kev just described with his engagement with General Powell, as long as you've done that, once the decision is made, we all know it's salute about turn and march off. It's not for us to undermine that decision. It's ours to get on with it and crack on. Um, I will say, though, support to decisions goes both ways, both with you and those who are in charge of you. And I'll give an example. Now, this is personal, uh, and I'll just highlight it to um, sort of cover off on what I've just talked about. Um, I was in 1 Brigade 0809... Um, General Krauss was my boss and we were having a lot of problems with 
the front gate. The front gate, the uh, contracted security staff would record all instances and, and issues and report, and I would get the report once a month. And it was obvious to me after a couple of months that we had some issues at the front gate. ID cards, people presenting without an ID card, and the list was hundreds long. And, you know, I questioned how can someone who's meant to carry their ID card on them all the time, how can this be so? And there are other issues. Um, Half-naked individuals heading towards the front gate looking for a taxi to go home, uh, not service persons, um, all sorts of troubles. Um, and people believed that that was a responsible responsibility of the contracted security service. My view was that it was our responsibility to fix that. I allowed a period of time for that to try and be sorted. It didn't work. So I went to my boss, the brigadier, and put to him my idea on how we could potentially address it, and that was through a garrison police, garrison guard function. It was simple. It was three uniformed Lance Corporal, fully qualified for Corporal, through to Captain, out of hours, weekends and public holidays to help police up the nonsense that was going on at the front of our barracks. Uh, the tension, friction, pushback that, that I received over that from all quarters was quite overwhelming. But the boss stood by me. He stood by my decision to stand that um, function up and within a very short period of time, it, the statistics turned around. Um, but the pushback was because they're paid to do it, we're not, it's their responsibility. That was the hardest thing I had to crack. But once the units and the individuals saw that it was achieving what was required, and that was to return some discipline to entry and exit off the base, um, it was accepted. Now, when I moved on, that process was ceased, but what was pleasing for me, and this is the last part of the question that Mark asked, do I stand by that support or decision now? Uh, next RSM on re-instituted um, that same process because he had the same frustration. So um, support goes both ways. Um, hopefully that gives a little bit to answering that question. As master trainers, and experts within their chosen employment category. Uh, what is the strength or value that you see our woe ones need to continue to bring to our army? The answer was obviously in front of my face. I, th I sort of flipped it a bit and thought, as a soldier, as a corporal, as a sergeant, what, what, what did I see the woe one as? And if I use the term RSM, I mean woe ones as well. Um, as a soldier, um, I thought I didn't have much to do with the RSM. I just thought he was a cranky old bastard carrying a stick, yelling at us all the time. Um, but it wasn't until I made the rank of corporal that I really understood what the war officer was. So in my eyes, number one, I think he needs to be the perfect role model. He needs to get out there and show his juniors, and it could be how to dress, how to do something. Well, it doesn't really matter. He's, he's the senior trainer in the unit, the most experienced trainer in the unit. So he knows all the answers. The, the other thing that I think he needs to be is like, the one thing the Australian Army's always been good at, we have let ourselves down a couple of times, I will admit, but the one thing we've been good at is maintaining standards. 
And we've all seen what happens when we don't maintain them. Bad things happen, really bad things. So we need the warrant officer to maintain the standard, to get out of his office, get out there and see what the diggers are doing, what the corporals are doing, making sure they are doing the right thing. So he needs to maintain standards. The other thing I think that the warrant officer needs to do is create what I like to call an environment of care. Now, that, seems, that sounds touchy-feely, I know, okay? But they need to, to create an environment of care. And it's about care for their people. It's about caring for the unit. And just as importantly, it's about caring for himself. So they're the three things that I think that we've always done well in the future and that will hold us in good stead, or sorry, in the past, but they'll hold us in good stead for the future. Next question over the other side of the table. Again, what advice do you have that will assist NCOs and WOES as they support officers in decision-making? Lead out a couple of points. Um, speak truth to power. There's subtleties with that, of course, how you deliver that truth or your understanding of the truth, but don't not be heard. It's your obligation, it's your responsibility to give advice when asked. If you're unsure, ask for the time to go away and have a think about it. Ask if you've got time to think about it and consult others. It's unlikely that you're the first person to be stuck with this problem. So think about what the issue is, think about what you're being asked. Consult if you need to, but when you go back, or if you give your answer straight away, uh, speak truth to power, but tell them why you've taken that position. And that's really important because it gives the listener or the question asker uh, some context to why you've given that advice or you've, you've given that information. Uh, and linked, and Kev touched on it, uh, the second point I wanted to touch on is a little bit of advice, do the right thing. Now, I often get asked, well, what is the right thing? Well, only you will know, armed with the full context of the situation, all of the knowledge, or most of the knowledge maybe, about what's going on, um, and then make your decision. Sure, you'll be judged, you'll be armchair experts, we'll talk about it later on, but as long as you have a think about what the issue is, gather all the facts or evidence that you have it available um, with the full context, do the right thing. And for some people, that's extremely hard. Your training, your experience, your understanding of the rules and regulations will point you down the path for the right thing. And more often than not, it's not easy. Make that hard decision and stand by it. And if you're proven wrong, test and adjust. Don't do it again. Uh, I think Don summed it up, but I think... Um you got to you got to trust your your training and the education you've been given to get to whatever rank you are at the, at the time. To, you, you've been asked for that advice, and through your knowledge and experience and understanding, you'll get to the to the right answers or the right advice to give to your commanders. Um, and you can only do that by being out and about. Um, and you've got to understand where you need to be to have impact for your chain of command.
be able to oversee what's happening um, and be able to speak truth to power, as Don said, about here's my advice to you, sir, ma'am. When you walk out that door, they are the decision makers and you support that decision because they're the ones that are accountable. But I think more broadly, I think we've got to work out where you can have impact because it's not sitting inside your office. Is it out on the range watching what's going on? Is it getting in a gun car? Is it standing on the gun line? But we've got to work out where you as an individual, your strengths are, that you can have impact for your commander to make sound decisions. Thanks, Mark. I'll just add to that, and I had the privilege of being the uh, an instructor, but also the senior instructor for the subject one for corporal and sergeant courses. Um, and one of the things I used to tell those corporals uh, that were very close to becoming senior NCOs is that subby that you have in your platoon is highly likely going to be the OC when you're a CSM or an SSM. The relationship does not stop just because you have a posting. Um, it, for all of the reasons that were just explained, our job is to enable command, right? It's only section commanders. Corporals in section commander appointments, uh, that command in the soldier space. So the majority of our careers is spent enabling command and therefore building that trust, building that relationship... As you move forward, not thinking about today, but certainly standing by your decisions because it's a well-informed piece of advice, um, but at the end of the day, it's going to be that officer that owns that decision and then you put your heels together and you move forward. So in order to save a bit of time uh, so we can get to questions shortly, I'm going to go to our final question for the board from myself, and this will be for everyone. What is the one piece of advice you would give your former soldier self that may assist our current serving soldiers to have a rich and enjoyable career in the Army? Who would like to go first? Um, it's a lesson I didn't learn until I was a sergeant. Um, the one thing I'd suggest that we develop is uh, compassion. Now, again, that sounds touchy-feely, but I don't mean it to be. Um, we need to be a, bit, a little bit more compassionate with our people when they make mistakes uh, and not so hard on them. And, that, and, and that's, that's something that I failed at uh, as a corporal. Um, I used to have on my, uh, my yearly reports a comment that went something like, uh, Corporal Woods does not suffer fools. I personally thought that was a great comment. Well, I don't suffer fools. But what... The actual meaning of it was that I don't accept below standards. Now, I, I wouldn't accept poor standards and no one on this panel would. But we all can't run 100 mile an hour. We all can't dress like straight up and down like a glass of water and square at the top like a sour biscuit. We all can't do that. But in my thinking, I try to make my people do that. And they probably suffered for it. So... Develop, develop some compassion for your people. They're going to make mistakes, just like we did. It's like Billy Joel said, we're only human, we're supposed to make mistakes. So come to terms with letting your people make mistakes. They don't do it on purpose. It's just a mistake. And have a bit of compassion when they do. 
Yeah, my bit of advice would be this. Don't leave your career timidly. What I mean by that is don't just sit there and say, I'll wait for someone to tell me what to do. I'll wait for someone to give me an opportunity. I'll wait for the next bus because the next bus may never come. You only get out of your career what you put in. It's like an investment account. Live your life, live your career tenaciously. Make yourself better. Make your team better. Improve things. Now, you may very well have bash your head against a brick wall or get told to get back in your box. It doesn't matter. You've tried. You've lived your career tenaciously. You only get out of your career what you put in your career. Now, I love the new Navy recruiting ad, by the way. It's all about action, but there's a line in it that we should always be cognizant of. It goes, live a story worth telling. If you live a story worth telling in your career, if you're a leader, if you have an environment, a leadership environment, where your people can live a story worth telling, well, that's the way to live a career. That's all I have. Thanks very much. Yeah, sure. Just two quick ones from me. Focus on your day job. The job you've got now, not the one you want. You spend your time looking up, and I'm not suggesting don't aspire, as Dave's just advised. I'm just saying focus on the job you got, not the one you want. People will notice that you're not focusing on your day job and you're looking up. And when you're looking up, you're not seeing what's in front of you or on the ground. And the last one I'll have is, it's what you inspect that's important, not what you expect. What do I mean? It's what you check. Grant talked about it. Others have talked about it. Get out on the ground. Just because you've told blogs to do something doesn't mean they've done it or they've done it to standard. Inspections, checks, validation is everyone's responsibility. And when you don't do that, people will take advantage of it. So it's what you inspect, not what you expect to happen. Thanks, Mark. um, A bloke a few down gave me this advice on my sub one for sergeant. You've got to believe in yourself. Um, So back yourself, challenge yourself every day, go and learn something every day, and you create your own future by doing that. Um, I haven't followed the golden path of um, set jobs in a sequence um, to get when I was the RSM in the Army. So challenge yourself. Go outside your comfort zone to be a better person. Um, and I tell you what, the, uh, it opens your eyes up because if you're a stovepipe and you stay in your core lane and those sort of things, um, you miss opportunities. And you miss opportunities to be able to develop people and you've missed opportunities to develop yourself. Bad thing about being at the end, you know, closer to the end, I know it's still got to come over there, is a lot of this stuff I'm ticking off because it's already been said. The the only thing that I would um, re-emphasise is stepping out of your comfort zone. Everybody that joins the army or um, joins our IDF has shown that they are willing to step out of their comfort zone. You had to do it just to walk into recruiting. You had to do it just to go through recruiting process. You had to do it when you went through uh, recruit school, IET school. But for some reason, people get to a point where they are comfortable and they prefer to be comfortable, but then might wonder why they're not achieving what they want to achieve. 
So continue to be motivated, continue to be passionate, continue to be optimistic through change uh, because that's a whole nother story um, because – and the way you do that is by stepping out of that comfort zone. Thank you. Thanks very much, ma'am. All right, we might go to some questions. Well, first one we'll go to someone in the live audience. Uh, g'day, ma'am. Uh, g'day, gentlemen. Uh, Warren's a class one, Cliffy Lawrence from Headquarters ALTC. I guess my question is uh, open to the panel, uh, particularly to the previous RSMAs. Is there something, if you could bookend um, from your last day in uniform to where you are now, is there one thing when you, through your lens of experience, when you look back into the organisation of Army now, is there, is there one key thing for you that stands out that is, differs from your experience when you were in the uniform? Thanks. Wife the other day that um, you have to use it. You have to learn a whole new language. Um, you know, you grow up in the green and you live the green. And you go home and talk about the green. Um, when you take the uniform off, um, the conversation changes um, about you know the partner becomes. Not that they weren't important, don't take me the wrong way, but they become centre of the conversation now, what their work is, what they do. So for me, it was about changing my whole language about when I go home and have, have those conversations. Now I'm at home cooking dinner um, for my wife when she, when she gets home. Um, yeah, and I, and I learned, learned a rookie lesson, you know, about four days after I'd... Taking the uniform off, I rang, I rang her and said, hey, babe, what time are you going to be home for dinner? I'm you know, starting to cook. And she, when she came home, she says, you have no idea what time I used to get home to because you were a seal at the office at 7.30, 8 o'clock at night. So don't ring me at work ever again because I never did it to you. <laughs> so. um, I just finished up working uh, in a role uh, after service with the Repatriation Commission. And one thing that, looking back that I didn't appreciate at the time was the discipline, the loyalty, the professionalism of the organisation. And when someone said something must be done, generally it got done. Um, in this next life, it wasn't always so. So I really look back into the organisation, Army Defence, and miss those qualities, those key things that makes the organisation different to the next organisation I moved on to. All right, we'll go to an online question. <clears throat> and the first question we have is from Warren Officer Ken Robinson, the Senior Enlisted Advisor to the CDF. Kim, gentlemen, thank you for your considerable length of service, leadership and time today. It's been extremely valuable to listen to your thoughts and perspectives. My question is, what advice would you give to soldiers to successfully working and operating in the joint environment, very respectively? No surprise that um, the SEAC and I have spoken about this and the opportunities that exist as we, we move for, forward and, and transform our organisation regardless of what service or uniform colour you wear. Um, you know, it's about understanding the differences because they are different. The different services are different for the right reasons, but it's also understanding why they're different and what that brings to the fold. It's no different when we talk in Army about the, the combi uh, combined arms effect, right? Different hat batches working together to get the effect. 
So when we talk in that joint space, getting understanding what that effect is, how we work together, um, and then there's opportunities that exist, and certainly at my level and with the service warrant officers and, and with SEAC, um, is what opportunities exist earlier. Because there's, it, Kim's opinion, there's quite a few opportunities in the officer space. We haven't quite got it that, there yet in the soldier space, which is the discussions that we are having each day. But thank you. To, to look at the joint uh, environment, um, I, I think you have to, um, to be successful in that joint environment. You have to consider, as Kim said, the differences in culture of the three services, and, and they are different for different reasons. Um, Army's a people organisation. Air Force and Navy are large equipment organisations. So one is we equip men in the Army, or soldiers, males and female, in the Navy and the Air Force, they man equipment, aircraft and, and ships. So that drives a cultural difference. I voluntarily um, self-directed um, my career out of the Army to ADFA um, when, it, when it was an opportunity. And my peer group at the time told me that I was crazy. I was potentially moving towards being considered for RSM Army appointment, but I'd taken myself out of the Army and out of the picture. Um, I didn't see it that way. I actually saw it as a significant step into a world of learning, learning the other cultures in an environment that I really wanted to be involved in, which was training future junior officers. And I had to learn to work with uh, an, a boss who was an admiral, and a deputy who was a, a wing commander, a group captain, sorry, and a, a different rank structure, um, different um, language uh, and everything. The way to do it for me was to just immerse myself in it, accept that it's different, um, but be green. I was the green bit for me, learning these other two cultures. I had had an earlier opportunity to work in the Navy um, as a stand-in helmsman on a uh, on HMS Ibis, a minesweeper, for uh, for some time, so I had a little bit of an idea about Navy and uh, some of the terms that they used. Air Force again was different, but in my time at the Defence Academy, my first year at an admiral, second year a group, uh, sorry, a general, and third year an air, air vice marshal. So I had three different views of command at that senior level. And I think if anybody out there has an inkling to, uh, to immerse into the joint world, uh, there are instructional positions at, at ADFA and, uh, and I'd promote them. Uh, they're a great, uh, great learning environment. Um, on, the, on, on finishing that, I would say to be successful in that environment, you have to be yourself. You have to strive to, uh, to learn and you have to be seen in a rank responsible position you have to be seen a little often. Don't hide in your office. My introduction to the joint world was when I was RSM Army and I built up the really great relationship with Martin Holzberger and Mark Pantriff, my office of numbers. But before that, we were stovepiped. But we're doing more and more joint things now. For example, the Navy has two ships, Canberra and Adelaide, the largest ships they've ever had and the most powerful. But they've got no torpedoes, they've got no missiles, 
What they have is an army battle group they can project ashore. So seek out opportunities, get to know them. Uh, fights to get on joint activities. At the bottom, things like the Chief of Defence Force Leadership Seminar for NCOs. Uh, other examples could be the uh, one RTBs right here in Kapuka. What unit just a few kilometres away from you? The Air Force One RTU. Go out there and see how they do business. Invite them to join you. So I think it's to seek out opportunities to see what the other services do in a joint environment and learn from them because we do not have the monopoly on the best ideas. Fantastic. Thank you. We'll go on to our next one for online and that's from Warren Officer Class 2, James Long at 3 Brigade. The question, the technological advancement in equipment and weaponry is a gimme on the road to 2040. Using recent world events as an example, how much emphasis should we continue to incorporate on mastering the basic analog, analog skills that cannot be te technologically overmatched? Well, you look at the war in uh, Ukraine. I guess people said you'll never have to do trench warfare ever again. You don't have to dig in. Well, the Russians have dug in and they're holding up pretty well. The Ukrainians dug in. They've actually had bayonet fights. Some things don't go away. When we fire all of our missiles, some of them cost $10 million a pop. After about the first two weeks of a war with a potential adversary, I'll probably get in trouble if I say China, we're going to have to go back to shooting guns, doing the stuff. We have to be brilliant at the basics. So if we give all that stuff up, one day we're going to bloody regret it. Full reliance on technology or an air war to win a land battle has been proven over and over again not to be the final or to deliver the final result. It's all part. It's the sum of the whole. It is the technology, the smart use of technology, um, but it is also the smart use of basics. And Dave's just given a very good example on when it gets down and dirty and the chips are down. It comes down to the individual skills, their tenacity, the leadership of those individuals to get the job done. So don't write off technology... Um, but don't write off the basics. There's a sweet spot with all of it. Would be um, read history because we can learn lots from history on how, how wars were fought, how we led, what technology was back there and then. So reading our history, I don't think we do enough of or we don't understand enough. We, we look to the future, which is really important about technology and those sort of things, but we need to be able to look back, look back how did we win I think technology should enhance our skills, not take over the skills. So there's a place for technology, obviously, but it, it enhances what we do. It doesn't control it. As we bring in these new platforms capabilities that from the start we are considering what that looks like in a contested environment across all domains, not just in the land domain and what that interoperability looks like. But absolutely, as has been highlighted, being, and I'll use the terminology, brilliant at the basics, the foundation for all of us, um, you know, as a soldier, but also as our primary ECN, uh, remains as important as it ever has. Uh, what we might do now is just do a bit of a 30-second wrap-up by everyone, and we'll start down at the end, Pedro. Well, I'd reiterate where I started and thank you, Mark and Kim, for
for uh, the invitation. I, I hope the answers that we've given to the questions provided uh, make sense and contribute to uh, a further discussion, perhaps. Um, to be successful, be yourself, do your best. Yeah, that that's, sums it up for me. Again, thanks, Kim, for this opportunity. It's been great. Um, yeah, just be yourself. You know, and the other good point that I think Don brought up was that don't worry about the next job. Because if you worry about your next job, you'll stuff this one up. And then you won't have a next job. So do what you're doing good and you do it well. Well, that next job will come. But just be the best you can be. Yeah, we must be doing something right because I believe that 99% of our trips are just awesome. So recently I had three conversations with people who had deployed to Kabul in the evacuation. Halfway across the world to pluck vulnerable people to safety from the clutches of the Taliban. And this is what they told me. These were corporals and diggers. They needed a vehicle, so they acquired one. I won't go any further than that. They needed water, so they acquired water. They needed food, so they acquired food. I was told this story by a woman section commander from 1RAR. A woman handed her a dead baby. She looked at the baby. She thought there were signs of life. They needed milk. There's no milk. Hang on. We've got tubes of condensed milk. Squeeze a little bit in the baby's mouth, massage the mouth. The baby came back to life. They never asked the general to do that. They never put in an opt-in for water. They just bloody got the job done. Now, having awesome soldiers doesn't necessarily mean we have an awesome army, but it's a bloody good start. So keep making those awesome soldiers. Thanks, Mark. Thank you to you for your facilitation this afternoon. Uh, thank you, Kim, again. Um, a fantastic initiative. And, you know, it's a, you're evolving the role and being more inclusive. And to have uh, Ken Robertson listening in online when he should be really doing some work is testament to um, the power, that the, the importance of this. Thank you to everyone in the room, to everyone online. Um, you know, Dave sums it up pretty well, I think. Um, Thank you for your service. Um, I'll just reiterate what everyone else said, but it's been really important um, for us to sit here today and, and chat with you. So thanks, Kim, for, for this opportunity. Um, and as I said a couple of times, my advice to everybody is seek opportunities, challenge yourself, because you're a fantastic organisation. Uh, I'm proud to have served in this organisation, but I'm even more prouder to stand on the sidelines and watch the organisation evolve because of the people sitting here and online. So thank you, and as Don said, thanks for your service. And being very mindful of time, uh, thanks very much, Mark. Appreciate it. want to thank the team at 1RTB for facilitating this. It was a no-brainer for us to come back to the home of the soldier um, and certainly for Forces Command... Uh, in enabling in this and coming up with a great idea. Gentlemen, I appreciate your time. For those on audience and those in the room, this is not the end of the discussion, right? The discussion needs to continue. We need to be informed. We need to challenge and continue to have that optimistic approach in everything we do whilst we're in a world, not just a defence force, a world of change at velocity. Thank you.
That concludes this edition of the podcast. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to download the Cove app. It's PME in your pocket, anywhere, anytime.